the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host. And today we are having a very special Planted in honor of Pride. And I have my colleague and friend, Michael Colbruno, founding member of the Milo Group in California, but also the owner of Ghost Dance Ranch, which is a one-acre cannabis farm in Lake County. Michael, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. I'm excited to be part of your podcast. I I can't I'm excited that you're here and it's I think it's really it's really important that we have this conversation. One, I just love catching up with you. But two, we don't have enough conversations about the inherent queerness of cannabis and the rich history behind it. And I'm just really glad to have you here to talk about it because it's not just about the plant and the patients. It's also about all the activism of the LBGTQ community that's made cannabis what it is today and for us to be able to have safe access. Absolutely. Um, and there's such a great history, you know, being here in San Francisco, uh, you know, of, of cannabis uh, in the Bay Area and California. And I think a lot of that history has been forgotten over the years. And I'm looking forward to talking about it a little bit with you today and, and your listeners, because, um, you know, we've the industry's changed a lot in the last couple of years, um, particularly since Prop 64. And, and I think we need to remember some of the early pioneers and why this became uh, such an important movement and why it came out of the medical community, why it was um, you know, really people who had health challenges, who really put cannabis in the forefront that led us to legalization. Yeah. And we can't forget that a lot of those people that worked very hard to do this often put themselves in some really sticky situations to either around moving policy forward or having sick partners that they had to put their lives at risk to be able to get cannabis to them when they didn't have safe access. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, we we forget like not that long ago, you know, we had the Reagan war on drugs, you know, it was not that long ago. And, and many of us were alive then and remember that time. And, yep. and you know, we, you know, we forget, you know, there was a time you could go into jail for a very small amount of, of cannabis. In fact, there's people still in jail who are incarcerated for a very small amount. So, you know, the fight is still on. But you know, it's the pioneers, and um, I'm just so proud of San Francisco because in the Bay Area, because it's been at the heart of it, you know, and I mean, you, you think back to, uh, you know, and I think 1966, the first ever, like, head shop uh, was opened in San Francisco, you know, Thielen's psychedelic shop in the Haight-Ashbury, and then, you know, a year later in the Haight-Ashbury, you know, the Grateful Dead all got arrested in a pot raid. You know, and so this was kind of like kicked off the activism. And then, of course, the summer of love, you know, happened in San Francisco. And then everybody tried to tie weed to the counterculture. And then it was just a bunch of wacky hippies smoking pot, you know. So <laughs> there was this, you know, there's this like you think of San Francisco as this really colorful, wonderful history, you know, around the plant. And then it turned into activism, you know, when AIDS came along. It's like it wasn't it wasn't just a recreational drug anymore. It became, you know, a plant, as you know so well, you've been so critical in this discussion about how it's a healing, a healing plant. And, you know, it kept so many people alive during the HIV and AIDS epidemic. 
And the people that emerged out of that movement, you know, Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary, um, are people I think during Pride Month we should really honor and talk about a little bit more. Yeah, and when you and I were discussing doing this episode, you mentioned a lot of other amazing politicians and policy and policy advocates from the LBGTQ community as well that we may not remember. And I think it's really important to highlight their names as well. Um, what are what are when you think of this? Besides, and you know, of course, Dennis and Brownie Mary are really important and integral to what we're talking about. But what are some of the other names? Who are the other people who have done a lot of work around this? Well, there's a handful of people who, to this day, uh, from the queer community, have really led the charge. And, you know, I was really privileged to work with uh, then-supervisor Carol Megden, and I followed her up to the legislature. And she, along with Terrence Hallinan, who many people will remember, was the DA for eight years, um, really kind of led the charge. And, you know, we forget the stuff we were fighting. Like, we had to put Proposition P on the ballot. And I remember Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary and all the activists coming to our office to make it the lowest priority of the police. Like they were arresting people for smoking weed. I mean, if you were in Golden Gate Park and you lit up a joint, you could get you could get thrown in the back of a van. And, um, you know, we forget that that these people were part of the the fight. And and Carol was great. I mean, and so with Terrence. I mean, Terrence was just you know, so dedicated. Of course, his son now is a very prominent cannabis attorney, Brandon Hellenan. Yeah, he's um, on oversight, cannabis oversight committee in San Francisco that's with me. Exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, the legacy, the Hellenan legacy lives on. But Carol and Terrence worked very closely, you know, allowing people to smoke in parks, allowing cannabis events in parks. I mean, there's just so much that was done. And then, you know, of course, um, you know, the Cannabis Buyers Club, which Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary created a market street and really creating safe places as as the AIDS epidemic was really raging um, for people to go to get a product in a safe space to not feel like they were going to get harassed by the police. It's amazing to think that these were the fights that we had to do, um, you know, now that we're in this corporatized, you know, cannabis world. But, you know, I remember, you know, going to the buyers club and you'd see people that were wasting away with AIDS and cannabis kept them alive and many of them it kept alive long enough so that the drugs that ended up saving people's lives could come along so you know when we think of this drug or this plant i should say i mean it was really a a life-saving you know a life-saving plant and i might keep calling it medicine um you know long before azt which was not really life-saving but some of you know the cocktails and stuff that came along that truly did save people's lives. And had it not been for cannabis, the number of people who would have died, including some very prominent people who were still around, um, I don't think would have made it. Uh, and so we should be very grateful, you know, to that plant. And, you know, Brownie Mary, there's a Brownie Mary club in San Francisco. And I think a lot of people really probably don't know who she is, you know, and she was a waitress at IHOP and she was volunteering on the AIDS ward you know, in, in San Francisco. And, and she you know, was she a got hell of a with, character. Oh my God. Mary Rathbone was her real name. And, and um, she was just so dedicated. I remember her just like charging into our office at city hall and, you know, and um, you know, she made, you know, she'd bring those as she called them magically delicious brownies. <laughs> with her and, um, 
you know, it's unfortunate. You know, she was arrested. She was um, in, I think it was 1981, if I remember right. And, you know, she was, you know, sentenced to 500 hours of community service. I mean, for helping people heal. Yeah. And we just have to wrap our brain around what that really means in hindsight. So these people really weren't just pot activists. They were people who were committed to the community, committed to the health and welfare of the community. And they really did pave the way because at the Cannabis Buyers Club was where um, uh, Prop 215 really yeah. came to to fruition. It's where the meetings were, the strategy meetings happened. It's where once it got on the ballot, where the activism and the mobilization happened. And, you know, some people will now argue that we were better off under, <laughs> under 215 than we are <laughs> under 64. Um, and I wouldn't argue with that too much uh, as somebody who has to pay some of the cultivation taxes and stuff right now. But, oh, right. Um, uh, you know, that's, that these, so, that, so San Francisco in the middle of it, and you asked like who the other folks were. I mean, you know, Carol and, and Terrence were obviously the early kind of leaders, but you know, Tom Amiano came along um, and, you know, and he served on the board. He kind of picked up the mantle, you know, when he went to the legislature, people might forget, but he introduced the very first legalization bill you know, in California, um, it wasn't successful. And then, you know, Mark Leno went up there, he carried on the tradition. Now we've got Senator Scott Weiner, who's carrying on the tradition, doing amazing work on trying to get access into areas where um, cannabis isn't available. Because one of the great flaws of Pop, Prop 64 was it created a mass desert in San Francisco where the product is actually available because it allowed jurisdictions to opt out. Yeah, And um, this is why the illicit market is thriving. So Scott's been great on that. And so, you know, yeah, so when we think about pride and we think about Carol Mason and Tom Mariano and Mark Leno and Scott Weiner, I mean, we really have a lot to celebrate this month. Yeah, we do. We do. And that's, you know, for me, starting out in my work in cannabis in a little shop in the Stro, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as we affectionately yeah. call the Castro. <laughs> You know, meeting a lot of a lot of people who lived in the Castro for decades, who lived through the AIDS epidemic and would tell me stories because I was I was still in Michigan when everything was really going going on. And um, just talking about losing friends or seeing these young men walking down the street like very, very old, sick men, just everybody who lost partners, lovers, friends, it was it was a decimation. And, you know, we really needed to have good community support. And even beyond the AIDS epidemic, I remember talking to my friends Michelle and Michael Aldrich about oh, yeah. yeah, about champs. And they were saying that, you know, it was more than a dispensary. It was a community center. Like when the nine eleven attacks happened they got a call saying, hey, we're opening early because there's a line waiting out. People are are frightened and anxious and they need our support. So they ordered a bunch of pizzas and people came in and they didn't just purchase cannabis. They came to commune with one another and really support each other in a hard time. And that's what it's all about, isn't it, community? And, and you know, I hope we continue that trend. I know um, there's, you know, Emerald Cup and there's stuff that still brings us together, but it's just, it, you know, I don't want to be, you know, nostalgic, but, but um, you know, there was a time it all felt very organic, you know, there'd be smokeouts in Mission Dolores Park and, 
you know, people just seemed to join and it was community and people start playing their guitars. And, um, you know, I hope we don't lose that. Yeah. You know, I hope it just doesn't become another commodity. Um, you know, not there's anything wrong with that, but, um, I but, like there's an opportunity for it to not only be a commodity. I mean, I just read a report the other week that it's actually the fifth largest cash crop in the United States. But we also have this unique opportunity to change the way we do business. That's right. And I feel like, you know, for as much as a lot of people are trying to change the face of cannabis, almost put this shiny veneer on it, which actually separates us from our our realization that it's actually a plant that's grown in soil instead of something packaged. We have, we still have amazing activists out there that are doing work, especially like around one of the, the major tenants of, of, you know, medicinal cannabis, which is compassion programs. And that, that was the Dennis prone Brownie Mary act. So exactly right. And now, you know, it, I mean, we've moved on, I don't want to say we've moved on, but you know, beyond HIV AIDS now, and I know the apothecary who you work with is great about this and Berkeley patients group who I also do work for. Oh, I love BPG. Um, have these, have these veterans programs and, you know, Etienne over at the, at, at the, uh, at BPG is, you know, testified before the United Nations and how critical this drug is for people with PTSD or veterans who, who, um, you know, have, have come back from combat. And, you know, I remember the very first time when I started Milo Group and, you know, we start getting into the cannabis space and, um, you know, Harborside was our very first client. And, and I was surprised, you know, walking in there and seeing who the clientele was and how many were veterans. I think the day I went, I'd say a third of the people that were shopping there were veterans. And you really realize how critical this drug is. Oh, yeah. To just be able to keep your mind together to get through a day or get through a year. Um, and so this medicine is, it's just amazing that we think of it as a drug and we, and even under prop 64, we treat it like a drug. Like I was talking to an assembly woman who's a farmer and she was shocked that, that this, the, the, that we get like taxed at the crop, that we're not allowed to sell our own product on our own farms. We're not allowed to like, take it to like markets like they can like she can take her walnuts to a farmer market we, we can't do that we have to go through this elaborate system um so we're still not getting treated like a crop in fact we're not even in the agricultural code which always really kind of bothers me it's like we should be like tomatoes there should be no difference right we should um, yeah and I think from a eat poly- your greens, eat your greens, and smoke your weed. That's, That's going right. to be my new mantra. <laughs> That's right. Well, we 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 look at it. We policy wise, we treat it like it's radioactive. And there's just it seems like that stigma is just a really good excuse for policymakers to take advantage of the industry. And for the record, I voted for sixty four, but I only did it because it seemed like every time something came up about legalization, there were that many more people with not the best of intentions that felt a little braver stepping up. <laughs> I just yeah, thought yeah. the next time there's going to be more greedy fingers in the pie and it's going to be an even worse deal. Like what we saw when they first were proposing medical in Ohio, which was a nightmare. You're right. But I just, I really, I feel like I'm just really glad we're having this conversation because there is, there is so much more heart and, and, and thought that's in cannabis than, people could actually know because there's there are 
we really need to highlight more the fact that there still is a really rich LBGTQ community that's engaged and is active in cannabis. And I think also talking about, you know, when we're looking at the LBGTQ community and some of the things that people go through, we're also seeing cannabis being used in many ways that are helpful still for things that people are going through. Like I, I have a colleague, what was it, maybe a year or two ago, um, I had my colleague Emerson Palmer on, and he was talking about when he was transitioning and how he was able to use cannabis to help with some of the things that he was going through, like hormonal troughing and, and different things. There are, there are different symptoms that come up when you're dealing with hormone treatments, hormone therapy, that cannabis can be really helpful for. So there's there's just a lot more to like delve into around this. And I think really like keeping to, of course, we're in a new era of cannabis, but not forgetting our roots and not making it so flashy and cold. We have a, we have a lot of work to do around that and also re- maintaining our community roots and making sure that companies that are coming into areas are also engaging with the community and giving back. Not that it's a panacea for everything, because it seems like states really look at that like, oh, we'll just throw some cannabis money into it. And it's like, huh. well, you could do that with any industry, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, but we can do things to support our communities. We can do things to look at conscious, conscious, how would you say, conscious, compassionate capitalism if there's I do believe that there is such a thing you know there's there's a balance and I, and I I wonder what your thoughts are about things that we can do to make sure that that's on the forefront of people's minds and, and to create a really strong maintaining of that culture well I think some of the you know the dispensaries we talked about I think apothecarium is a great example as is BPG and you know a lot of other folks spark um they really, long before it was required, were giving back to the community. Yeah. Um, and were integral parts of the community, um, you know, were involved, had their employees involved. You know, and I think that's really important. And, you know, this group I'm involved with in Lake County, you know, we put together a pride pack, which, you know, uh, as a lot of the farmers who are, you know, identify as LGBTQ or LGBTQ friendly, um, and, you know, we're giving proceeds back to the community. That's something that, you know, we're trying to do at a little old Lake County. Um, and it's so important to reinvest back in your community because, as you know, as you're saying, it, it, it creates that community, right? It's a, it's a broader meeting place. You, you support organizations and, and groups that, that, that have the like interests and like goals and motivations. And, and um, it's just a, it's a really wonderful thing, and I, you know, I don't think we're going to lose it. And I like your, your statement about you know compassionate capitalism because it can exist, and and actually it's done so many good things over the years. I remember when I worked the board of supervisors, you know, we had private industry was funding um, follow-up breast exams for poor women because the city couldn't afford it. We had a budget crisis, so you know, private industry can step up, and I think it's important that this industry does. I think part of the problem we face sometimes is that we've been in the shadows for so long that I think a lot of people are kind of hesitant, um, you know, to kind of step up and put themselves out there and put their money out there because they're afraid there's going to be some backlash. And, you know, it brings up kind of a, another thing for me. It's like when I start working with the Lake County 
kind people and start asking about, you know, other LGBTQ farmers, it's like it's this kind of this hush because it exists out there, but even there's a closetedness in the cannabis cultivation community um, with growers. It's still like for queer people doesn't always feel like a safe place because it is kind of a bro business. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I hate to say it's one of the reasons I love Lake County. I mean, Lake County is just run by women and it has just a whole different vibe. It just has that more community spirit, like let's all get together and kumbaya. And it's just really beautiful, you know? And um, so we're trying to celebrate that. I mean, we've been really, as you know, we've kind of trying to take it on the road and trying to showcase, you know, women farmers. And now we want to showcase the LBGTQ farmers. And I think those are really important things, both of those, I think for women and the LGBTQ community, it's so important to be out there invisible because that's not the face of cannabis. That's true. As a general rule, yeah. right? Yeah, that is true. And and the name of the group that you're involved in is called Lake County Kind, correct? Lake County Kind. They're actually our distro that we work with. And um, it's a wonderful woman, Erin McCarrick, is really a go-getter and is doing some really exciting stuff. And, you know, we've been talking to folks in Mendocino um, about, you know, this Emerald Diamond that you always talk about the Emerald Triangle, the three counties, you know, Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity. But there's really more in common between Mendocino and Lake. Uh, and, and, you know, we're connected and there's a lot of recreational stuff that's kind of on our border. And so there's, and we have the wine industry. There's so much that's just really symbiotic between the two. And we're trying to figure out more around canotourism and and really trying to turn that triangle to a diamond and really encouraging people to talk about it more. Because actually Lake County, the weather's actually more conducive to really good weed. Uh, it's drier. Um, Ghost Dance Ranch, we're on the top of the hill. We have perfect sunlight, which actually follows the plants during the day on a diagonal across the top of the hill. And we get really beautiful like THC and terpene profiles in our product. People don't believe it's outdoor. And, um, and so, you know, it's also like this, this weird bias we have about certain growing areas. It's just another one of these things where um, it's really kind of hard to break out of the old mindsets, you know, like people want it from the Emerald Triangle, but there's this diamond that's got great product coming out of it, you know, (laughs) so we're trying to promote that a little bit. And I'm really proud to be part of it. Yeah. Oh, no, we're going to yeah, say that. I, I just interrupted you. What were you going to say? <laughs> no, just one other thing. I just, you know, one of the things, that whole other thing that's never talked about is, so our ranch is named Ghost Dance. And that comes like, I'm part Native American. And, um, you know, a lot of these farms are on Native American land. And I really wanted to celebrate that. I, it was very important for me to have a name that um, recognized that we're actually on somebody else's land. Um, I get emotional when I talk about it, that we actually took people's land and that it's important if we're doing this product that we celebrate it. And, you know, one of the things I really want to do, you know, when this industry starts making money again, is, you know, start giving money to the Native American Health Center um, so that we're putting back in the community, you know, whose land we're sitting on. So, you know, there's so much. This is such a complicated thing as we are basically creating a new industry. I mean, it's been around but it's not been legal for long and we're still trying to figure out how to do things right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always liken it to, um, as my background is 
you know, in organizational psychology. And I, we talk about storming, norming, and reforming when we look at, you know, organizations. And I feel like, you know, the movement and the industry, because I, I, even though people always refer to the industry, the movement still exists, and we can't forget that. But I feel like we're we're going through some really interesting times around that. But at the same time, you know, the heart is still there because I feel like, well, when we started doing compassion programs again, and for you listeners out there who have been hearing me say this and maybe I haven't defined what it is, a compassion program is where we're able to give free cannabis to critically and chronically ill community members that have medical cannabis cards. And this is driven by the generosity of our cannabis companies because they actually donate product to these programs. Um, I, I run one in San Francisco, um, and also we have it in Berkeley. But when we started, when those were able to happen again, I was really reluctant to make asks because some people may not, may not realize this, but the cannabis industry is held to extraordinary taxation. And when we go to do our taxes, we don't have the same rights to um, to claim um, expenses the way other businesses do. So that can be a, a huge hardship for companies. But even so, when I asked and I didn't want to pressure anybody, people were really happy to step up and donate product to these programs and and make a difference, which made me feel incredibly hopeful. Yeah, I don't know a more generous industry, to yeah. tell you the truth. I mean, for the nobody pays the taxes that we pay. I mean, the the effective tax rate from the time you cultivate to the time you get to retail can be as high as 45%. And, and imagine on top of that, you can't do, as you mentioned, the business deductions. Um, it, it's a really hard business to, to make a profit in right now. And, and, you know, I mean, for us, I mean, the, the price right now in the legal market is about 300 bucks a pound and it costs us $350 a pound to produce. So, you know, we're, we're, we're working in the negative right now. Um, and so people like Scott Weiner um, and a lot of our friends in the legislature are, you know, obviously working very hard. The governor, uh, kudos to our former San Francisco mayor who, you know, is eliminating the cultivation tax. Um, but there needs to be more done on the excise. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, because what they're basically just doing is shifting the burden, which does nothing really to eliminate the illicit market. And that's where the problem is. Um, I know up here in Lake County, we just had a massive bust and it was drug cartels. Um, I know the Alameda County DA had talked to me about, you know, when they shut down BPG, like the cartels were right back in there. Um, they are the strongest competition and, our, you know, legislators need to get it right. They need to not shift the tax burden around, but they need to make it. So Prop 64 actually says that the intent of Prop 64 is to create a system in which the legal market can complete compete with the illicit market. And that's not happening right now. And I have maintained that if the legislature this year doesn't make those changes that the industry needs to sue. Yeah. Because I think it's actually violating Prop 64. And you know who it's really hurting? It's hurting women and people of color, LGBTQ people, because we have the hardest time gaining access, um, getting through the regulatory schemes, um, getting access to capital, so it's a real social equity issue, um, taxation. So I really feel strongly. I know um, we've been working with an attorney 
you know, who's already drafted a potential lawsuit. We've already informed the attorney general's office about it and feel very strongly if the legislature doesn't act properly, um, this industry could fail. And everything we're talking about, Sarah, is going to go by the wayside. Yeah. And the cartels will take over. It, it happens every time there's an opening, they're here. And that brings crime into our neighborhoods. Um, and it, it excludes so many of us who are trying to do the good, compassionate work. It's true. I, I, I don't understand in many ways why common sense is thrown out the window when the the state <laughs> looks at cannabis. Like a, a couple years ago, I was in a cannabis oversight committee meeting and the controller's office did a report on the price per gram of cannabis. And they said that the price per gram was going up because of competition. And I laughed and I got on my mic and I said, never, never has anything ever gone up because of competition. The reason the price has gone up is because of the hardships that people are having to deal with taxation, the fact that it's very expensive to do business in California, and that real estate is crazy. And, you know, everyone was like, oh, thanks for bringing that up. And why should anyone even have to bring that up? But we see this in cannabis policy all the time where it seems like, you know, the people who work in our government who are supposed to know or are supposed to be experts in their fields and understand economics and an impact on communities. And they seem to forget it when they look at us. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting. Our, my, my company, Model Group, we were just working on a, helping them with a um, rewrite of an ordinance. And uh, it was shocking to us because the staff had rewritten a cannabis ordinance and not invited the cannabis industry to the table. What's I that mean, all about? Imagine, imagine if rules for wine, the wine industry, and none of the wineries, none of the wine growers were invited to the table. It's just astonishing to me that we're viewed, we're still this, this perception is these like wackadoodle hippies in the hills, you know? Um, and and when, you, when you look around, I mean, you know these people in this industry. This is such an industry filled with everything from, you know, your, 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 your grower on the mountainside you know, to the most sophisticated, you know, Harvard MBA, um, you know, doing financial analysis for a dispensary. It's just, it, it's all encompassing. And to look at us differently, it doesn't serve government well. Um, you know, I do give a lot of credit uh, to the folks up in the, the legislature. I mean, I'm a little frustrated with where the bills are right now, and maybe that'll change, um, you know, after we talk. Um, but they're at least trying, and the industry does have a seat at the table. They actually listen, and the governor's office has been great. And the other thing I'm really heartened by is in this era where this nation is so divided, like we can't seem to agree on the most basic things like a fair election, right? Right. Is, is there are bills that passed yesterday or this past week with one dissenting vote on cannabis which means Republicans are voting for this. And, and, you know, Republicans are in a lot of rural counties where it's farm communities. And you hear people like Brian Dolly, who's one of the most conservative reactionary members of the legislature is running for governor against Gavin Newsom, but is like the most pro-cannabis guy you can meet because he has farms in his district and he hears the pleas of the farmers because they're actually listening up there on both sides of the aisle. And that's why I'm hopeful that some good stuff's going to get changed. Um, you know, I always think about like Leno had that bill um, 
you know, the decriminalization bill and, and, and it was a Republican governor who signed it, Schwarzenegger. So, you know, Democratic legislator, Republican governor. So we can work together. And I feel like cannabis is one of those uniting things. This is my positive pitch here is, you know, even in Congress, I think the best bill is right now, Nancy Mace from South Carolina, who's a Republican. Um, and, and so I feel like there's hope on the horizon because I feel like this plant is not dividing us politically. And, and that's, it's the regulators and the taxation scheme that's killing us. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is very bipartisan and I don't think people realize or appreciate that much. It's, it's something that actually maybe can help reunite us a little bit more because it's the political landscape is so weird now. It's, I, I remember before when, you know, somebody was Republican, you're like, oh, they're just fiscally conservative. <laughs> and now it's like, oh, well, there's a lot more. We Let's unpack that. It's a lot different now. But I mean, I just, uh, in February, I was talking with a former RNC um, head, you know, Michael Steele. Michael Steele. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And that was one of the things that, you know, we talked about on the podcast and even afterwards was I was like, you know, he's like, well, you're speaking my language. I don't like taxation. <laughs> I, was, I was we were having the conversation about, you know, from the federal level, like there will be taxation. And how much can the market bear when we're already really struggling? And so I hope that some that, you know, because cannabis is very bipartisan, you know, I mean, I never thought I'd 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 be like, oh, the Republicans are are creating a little hope for me because that's just never been the case. But maybe they'll be able to protect. You know, maybe they'll be able to help us with things not being overtaxed. That would be really nice. I would like them to work on some other things as well that are even like bigger fish outside of cannabis. But when we're talking about this, I really hope that maybe that tempers some of the hunger for taxes. And also, you know, we need to start really looking at if we're looking to get rid of, you know, an illicit market or traditional market, we need to be creating better ease of access to going legit. That's right. You know, maybe what we need is a congressional smoke out. Maybe we all need to just go up on the hill, light up you know, and have everybody just chill out and talk and work through all the problems of the world. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe this is the great healing moment, you know, we'll have yeah. a congressional mm -hmm. smoke out. And, um, and, you know, you think about it too. I mean, there's been Republicans, Dana Rohrabacher, you know, super conservative, actually ended up being one of these pro-Russia guys, mm -hmm. but you know, he was mm -hmm. a huge pot advocate for years in Congress. So, um, you know, maybe this is, maybe we've hit on something, Sarah. Yeah. Maybe we need to take this to Washington, D.C. and say, we've got an idea for bipartisan <laughs> unity. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny because when I was talking to Michael, he was saying that he's never used it, but he knows how it has affected friends and family. And he's like, you know, if I could drink it, maybe I'd try it. And I was like, well, you know, you come to San Francisco, I... We can we can have some cannabis cocktails and yeah. talk. Well, we... I like the gummies. You know, I'm not a smoker, so I have bad lungs. So I mean, it, it, the gummies are fabulous. You know, and I love that we have these amazing edibles on the market now. You know, it's some of the best products around. Yeah, yeah, I I I love that too. There are there are so many things um, 
there, it, it's just really important to have lots of different ways to use it. And when we're looking at, you know, states and policies, I always find it interesting when they're like, well, we'll allow this and we won't allow that. And I always tell people, you know, the reason we have all these different ways to use it and it needs to be allowed is because we all metabolize it differently. So for the most people to be able to reap the benefits, we need to have different modalities of use. Exactly right. Yeah. But we've been getting into some really heavy stuff, which is good. But I haven't asked you some of my questions that I like to ask all of my guests. And I would all like right. to talk about you some more. So what was your first cannabis experience, if you don't mind sharing it? No, I don't mind a bit. Um, it, it's funny. I was not kind of part of the pothead community, you know, when I was in high school. I was I kind of hung out with the jocks, to tell you the truth. And um, even though I was out. You know, I came out when I was 16. Um, I remember I was working as a busboy in a restaurant. I think I was 16 years old and we were emptying the trash. And one of the guys I worked with lit up a joint back there. And we you know we smoked and went back in the office. And, and I remember our manager said, are you guys high? And we just giggled. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't get in trouble. He just laughed it off. And that was the end of that. But, you know, that was my, my first experience. And. Um, you know, it's interesting though, how my life has keep, has kept bringing me back into cannabis. It's like, you know, working, you know, for Carol and, you know, at city hall and, and, you know, all the, the stuff that she was doing and taking that up to the assembly. And then, you know, when I, I, I was at clear channel, I, I worked as, I was vice president of clear channel, Northern California. And, you know, we did the free Ed Rosenthal billboards and we got really involved in that and had to take on, America who wanted the billboards down. And then, you know, I started my own lobbying firm when I left corporate America and, you know, got drawn into the fight with Harborside and the feds and then with Berkeley Patients Group, you know, um, you know, and the tax issues that they had inherited and their issues with the feds. And, it, and, you know, then, you know, buying a property in Lake County, not intending to farm and realizing I was in a green zone and what a beautiful community this was up here of, of gondrepreneurs and I wanted to be a part of it. And so I just, it feels like this plant keeps drawing me in. It, it won't let me go. It's like, <laughs> you're not, you don't get to go another direction. And, and, you know, my farmers, you know, have said to me, like, we're so glad to have you as a partner um, because, uh, you know, we, we can do the farming and, uh, you know, you can do the policy work and, you know, you're sitting there out there fighting on taxes, which, you know, we forget sometimes, like, this has been the disadvantage, I think, um, you know, a lot of the small farmers have been in, they really haven't had a voice. And, and I'm glad to be part of that now. So yeah, this plant has been a journey for me. It's it just keeps pulling me back in. And I'm glad to be a part of it. Because it's it I, I, I said this, when I first started lobbying in, in the cannabis community, the absolute best clients I have, are in this industry. They they are just respectful, honest, um, warm, sharing people. And I can't say that about every industry I work in, but the cannabis community is. Yeah, yeah. I think what I think you know, changing the perceptions of who the cannabis community is and who cannabis consumers are, who are part of the community. Um, I think it's it's really important now that people start to let policymakers know who they are so that policymakers can have a better understanding of their constituency 
because there's, you know, there is that outdated notion of who they are. And, and when I used to still work in the stores, especially after legalization, you know, there were a lot of tears because people weren't able to afford what they were using as medicine. And they get mad at the dispensaries and the companies. And I would always clarify for them, you know, it's not us. It's it's the taxation and all of the different things that we're held to more so than even like the organic food industry. But it's time for people to say, you know, I am a contributing member of society. I pay taxes. I use cannabis and I vote. That's right. Well, you know, what's encouraging is the Grateful Dead generation is now in power. So the people that we think are old now, you know, are in their 60s and 70s, you know, they're the people in power. And I think that's why we're seeing this bipartisan effect, because I think they're people who grew up smoking pot and it wasn't considered an evil thing. And, and those are the folks. It's not the Nancy Reagans, you know, that are in power anymore. Yeah. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, I am too. Yeah, yeah, Nancy did a did a number on on everybody. I remember my cousin when she was little, she was in elementary school and she had strep throat and she'd gone through the DARE program. And her her doctor wanted her to take these antibiotics and she looked at my aunt and she's like, "Say no to drugs." <laughs> Say oh, that's no hysterical. to drugs. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that kid. <laughs> no, now she likes weed. <laughs> I love it. Good kid. Of course, she, she's also pushing forty. So <laughs> there's that. Right. See what I'm saying? Becoming generational. It is. It is. And and you know when you were bringing up music in the Grateful Dead generation, it's like, I, and I'm a I'm a jazz musician, but I I noticed that you are you are into classical music. I mean, all kinds of music, but yeah, I do a lot of, I, I produce a lot of classical music. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is I, I commission a song cycle every year uh, from an American composer. And um, I'm trying to keep the American song tradition alive. It's something I'm deeply devoted to. And, and the one I'm working on right now, I'm very excited about. It's a all African-American um, program. It's a, a wonderful woman named Brittany Boykin, who's an award, award-winning composer. Um, and and professor and a singer who I'm absolutely in love with, Sydney Outlaw, who's just the funniest and most talented human being on the planet. He has a beautiful new album out called Lament. Um, and um, I'm happy to be working with these two. And this is going to be my new project. The one I did last year is we've, we've been trying to premiere it, but COVID keeps getting in the way. It's a song cycle based on fathers and sons. There's so much music in the classical canon between fathers and daughters and mothers and daughters, but nothing really between fathers and sons. Um, and it's a really touching, uh, it's a really touching song cycle. It kind of takes from birth to to leaving the home, and uh, I, I'm glad to be adding that to the musical canon. Oh, that's so cool! I love that. Yeah. I I love I love the fact that there is a there's more there's there are people like you supporting the arts. Like I, um, I don't know if you know Marcus Shelby. He is his jazz oh, orchestra. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's done some amazing stuff too. Not classical, but jazz, like with his stuff uh, around Port Chicago, um, and other things that he's done. Um, I, I come, I come from civil rights, so um, Equal Justice Society did a lot of work supporting him with his work, and and I, I know him as a 
well, of course, he's <laughs> when I when I think about Marcus, I can't I, I have a really hard time calling myself a musician. <laughs> oh, he's so brilliant. So he's brilliant. so brilliant. Yeah. Um, but also, like, when you look at the creative process in music, like for me, when I would go into the studio and work, I always found that having like a couple of puffs before I went in to do songwriting with my songwriting partner and producer or even, you know, a, a little puff doesn't affect your voice. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. I just tell you, I mean, it's probably people don't think of pot smoking in classical music, but I mean, I know so many artists and composers. I mean, it is a great tool for creativity, right? I mean, right. who hasn't had a little sativa in their system, had the brightest idea they've ever had in their life. But I'll tell you a very funny story, Sarah. When I, when I, I, I sit on an opera board and um, it, it came up that I, I lobbied in the pot industry and I had this woman sitting next to me, 82 years old, and she leaned over to me after the discussion and she said, do you know where I can get some Gorilla Glue? <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. And I said, I actually do. The apothecarium carries it. And she goes, good, because you know what? If I didn't smoke a little, I couldn't get through these board meetings. <laughs> <laughs> We became fast friends. Let me say that. I love that. I love that. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, going back to the perceptions of cannabis users. I always used to tell people, spend an afternoon in my waiting room and see see who comes in and see what you think. You know, and and, and also like, you know, when I go into meetings, you know, I, I suit up and I wear heels. And it it always makes me chuckle when people's perceptions are, oh, she probably doesn't even use weed. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, isn't that something? It is. I was like, well, this, you know, I, I wish that those thoughts weren't so, but by the same token, I'm like, well, that means that I'm like deep undercover. So maybe I can make some change. Yeah. Well, remember when like the Elon Musk thing happened and he said he smoked pot and like the stockholders, I mean, if he went crazy, it was like, what is the big deal? I mean, the guy's one of the creative geniuses, whatever you think about him with Twitter, I mean, he's like a creative genius. He's changed the auto industry. He's changed solar power. Uh, and, and the guy smokes a little weed and it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, this is like, because he's a CEO, it's just remarkable to me. Like, I wonder, like, how many, I know a CEO of a bank who's the biggest pothead I know. Yeah. And he's brilliant. You know, he's created a a massive, you know, successful financial organization. But, yeah, these you're right about those stereotypes. We really do. This is this old like hippie on the hill view we have of a pot smoker, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. And if we, yeah. Oh, no, what are you gonna say? Knowing this, this you you meant you touched on is this changing these perceptions is so important, but I do feel like generationally that's really happening. Yeah, I do you know, too. I think like like this Nancy Mace, you know, conservative Republican from South Carolina, talking about smoking weed when she was a waitress. I mean, that 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 alone does more to change things than we can ever imagine. I she agree. normalizes. She normalizes it more than any of us could do through activism. It's true. Her standing on, yeah, her standing on the steps of the Capitol with people promoting legalization, best thing that could happen. It's like I always say: conversation is normalization. The more we talk about it, and the more people share their experiences, the better it's going to be. Even even from like a a harm reduction standpoint, like talking about how we all react differently. So that if somebody doesn't have the experience that they want with it, it doesn't necessarily turn them against it. We we need to have critical thought around it. Well, let's bring this back to Pride Month then, because uh, Harvey Milk, 
uh, used to say, come out, come out wherever you are, and had that belief that if everybody knew a gay person, it would normalize it. Mm -hmm. And that is what happened. So as we started to get into domestic partnerships and and marriage, and it became, people became more visible, and we had, you know, remember coming out day, and uh, everybody would like tell their parents, and it became very normal. And now, you know, it's sad what's happening with privacy rights at the Supreme Court. And, you know, I know people are very concerned about, you know, gay marriage being repealed, and certainly the, the you know, Griswold case, which is a, your right to contraception. Um, but I, I have a feeling that 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 the fact that our community has been out for so long and we've made ourselves so visible and normalized it so much, there's no going back. Yeah. I can't imagine they could strip this away. It's just I, I maybe I'm falsely optimistic, but um, you know, there's a lesson out of out of the LGBTQ community. I mean, Harvey Milk taught us right: normalize it, make it visible, and um, your life's going to be a lot better. Yeah, I I have a lot of hope because of the younger generations and how active they are and how open and accepting they are. It's just um, it it makes my it warms my heart. Like uh, that valedictorian in Florida, when they told him, you know, they'd cut his mic. So he just talked about curly hair. But he said that if those policies had been in effect when he was younger, he may not have come out. He may not have felt brave enough to do it. And that's scary. Look at us being the optimists here. This is like the optimist podcast. Like we're just seeing the good and the light and everything today, which I love, <laughs> you know, because, you know, these conversations can get pretty dark and dour sometimes, you know, because you're, you're fighting uphill battles all the time. And, and, you know, you're just, you're really inspiring me, Sarah, because, you know, you're reminding me how often we need to just look at the bright side. There is always, if we keep up the fight and, you know, like I really appreciate how you do your podcast and you bring amazing people to the table I like Michael Steele is a great example and just talk about talk about this and normalize it for audiences that, you know, may not be pot smokers, right? Yeah. And may not be near Well, and to have the conversation that we have more in common than we might ever know. Like talking to Michael gives me hope that there's like because he's a really cool guy and he's, you know, and he's made some real stands like there are some things that are happening in that party that are terrifying and there are people that are trying to make sure that they're trying to, to pull it back and, and, and get us out of that nightmare. There are, there are good people on both sides of the aisle that are trying to get things done. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's just, I, I, I kind of miss, I think, I feel like the pendulum has swung so far. I think the Republican Party has gotten so crazy. Yeah. I almost feel like it's going to implode on itself. These, I think there's so much beneath the surface that we're not talking about, and I don't want to get into a whole different conversation here, but, you know, this stuff with Russia and these Russian assets in Congress and, you know, people who are just apologists, apologists for Vladimir Putin, the fact that all these Republicans voted against aid to Ukraine. I mean, there's clearly something going on, and I feel like it will implode, and I feel like we're going to get back to normalcy. I feel like there'll be a, a healer and a uniter who's going to come along, you know, who will be our president. And um, I, I hope it'll be in our lifetimes. I think it will be. And um, it'll be a good day. I really hope so. I hope that we can get to, we can take things back so that voters can actually see candidates who are looking to serve the people and their well-being rather than special interests and their 
and their pocketbooks, that they're not looking at it as... Because that's the thing that I see with this callousness is that people are turning themselves inside out and supporting things that don't serve the people for their own benefit. And that's mm-hmm. that's not the job that they're supposed to be doing. That's exactly right. So <laughs> bringing it back up again... <laughs> What are some things that you're excited about and hopeful for in the future? Just in general or in the cannabis industry? All of it. Oh, wow. What am I hopeful for? So I'm hopeful for so much. I mean, I do feel like just to start with this industry, I feel like I I feel like better days are ahead and I feel like legalization is going to happen federally. And I think this this plant will get normalized. Um, I, I think for like the LGBTQ community and pride month here, I, I feel like, um, I feel, I feel like we're in a good space. I, I feel like we've come so far. I mean, look at Pete Buttigieg. I mean, the guy's secretary of transportation is being talked about as the next president. That's just a normal conversation now. I mean, uh, when I was a teenager or adult, uh, that just was a, we would have laughed at that conversation, you know, and that's normal now. Um, so I just feel like there are just are really good days ahead of us. And I, I do feel like this country is on the cusp of a swing back in a really good direction. And I'm hopeful for that. And I actually, this stuff with Ukraine, um, I feel like it's brought a lot of nations together. It's made NATO stronger. Um, it showed us how important alliances and working together is um and on a slightly sadder note but i'm hopeful i I just i think this school shooting in evalde texas is a turning point i hope so it's 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 heartbreaking um i had a really hard time with that this week it's and it's and it's not just this one incident it's the fact of how many people have to die before we understand that you know how precious a life is yeah, how many kids? I mean, imagine if a terrorist group came in and we have a school shooting a day and there was a school shooting a day from some terrorist group. I mean, we would be outraged. Yeah. But we're so devoted to these assault weapons. And, you know, my dad was a gun owner. He was, a, you know, a hunter and, you know, everything I'm not. But um, he was a responsible gun owner. And, you know, I wouldn't have wanted his guns taken away. I don't think anyone's talking about that. Mm-hmm. But why we're sitting there protecting an 18 year old kid to have an AR-15 when the 20 largest mass shootings in our country have all been tied to this one weapon. I mean, what I mean, I saw Senator Kennedy from Louisiana say, said, what do you need an AR-15 for? And he joked to shoot a wild pig. And I'm like, really, as as 21 people are being buried in Texas, you think that's funny? Um, but this is some of the challenges we have, you know, on the other side, right, is getting past those mindsets. But we will. We will. We will. Yeah, and I, and I, I agree with you. I, I come from Michigan, um, the Upper Peninsula, where, you know, hunter safety and deer season are a rite of passage for a lot of people. Um, but they don't go in the woods with AR-15s. Yeah, nor should they. You know? Nobody does. Right. Yeah. That's why I don't understand it. It's like, uh, but this is why we need that smoke out, you know? We need to get Senator Kennedy, smoke a little weed, have a conversation with him. <laughs> Maybe give him, him a hug. Get him, <laughs> get him a hug, get him on the enlightened side, you know? Tell him it's okay to take on the NRA. Things will be okay. Don't worry about it. Go listen to some Willie Nelson. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
life is good. <laughs> Come That's... chill with us a little bit, you know. <laughs> That's it. Now, That's Ted Cruz, it. there's no hope for, so I don't think there's a, a pro- I mean, we grow some pretty strong High level THC, but I don't even think we could we could affect Ted Cruz. So. I kind of want to send him back to yeah. I want to send him back to Cancun, but I don't think they want him either. No, I don't think so. But I'll pay for it if you can get him to get on the plane. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. <laughs> so, for those of our listeners that are out there, if they sometimes people want to get involved, but they're afraid to, but they just don't know where to start. What are some of your suggestions for people to get engaged? Well, I always tell people, I mean, the, the first place always to start is to go volunteer for something you think you're interested in or something you care about and see if it really lights your fire. Uh, I, that's what I did. I, I was like the consummate volunteer. I volunteered for everything. And, you know, I found things that really excited me and motivated me and, and have become lifelong passions and sometimes my work. And I really think that's an important thing to do. Do what you love. Um, nothing should feel like work to you, you know? Yeah. If you do stuff you're really passionate about, you're going to live a happier life. Yeah, that is true. And and for people who want to follow you or the Milo Group or Ghost Dance Ranch, how do they do that? So we do have a Instagram, Ghost Dance Ranch 707 is our Instagram um, that's really our only social media presence, although uh, we are part of uh, Blake County Kind, too. You can watch us through that because a lot of the stuff where our product is going to be shown is through Blake County Kind. Um, and then, you know, I have a website, my lobbying group, you know, milogroupca.com. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of stuff in the cannabis space. And like I said, we just love working in this industry. It's it's so wonderful and be able to, to be part of the change to make it a better community for all is a lot of fun. So um, that's that's the best place. I do have a Twitter feed, Mike Opera. It's my private personal one. I talk about everything. Um, I'm a port commissioner as well in Oakland. So talking a lot about the baseball stadium. So uh, that's what my Twitter feed is a lot of. <laughs> and, and anti-gun stuff. I really, I really, gun violence is just, I'm obsessed with it. And and I remember after my dad, you know, gay marriage happened, he said, son, what are you going to be angry about now? And I said, guns and income inequality. I said, those are two things I can get angry about. So I've got plenty to work on. Well, I think my husband would tell you to really work on keeping the A's in Oakland because we've lost everything else. Well, that's what we're trying to do, and I think we will. Yeah, I hope so. I'm glad to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was, he was just gutted when the Raiders left. So yeah, it's hard. You know, things like that are so important. You know, you talked early on on the podcast about community, and those are community spaces. You you think about sports events where there's tailgate parties and people get together and barbecue and throw footballs around and baseballs and have fun and the kids are playing and. I mean, that's all community. It's all the same thing, right? And to lose that in a market like Oakland, the East Bay, is is uh, is would be really sad. Yeah, yeah, it would. I mean, community is so important, and and I'm so grateful that you're part of my community, Michael. And I'm so glad that you came on today to talk about this very special holiday that we're that we're you know coming up on, and. Um, it's just so important to support our communities 
and our LBGTQ brothers and sisters. And as, as a queer woman, I, it really resonates for me because these are all, this is my family. And, you know, I, I, I live with the privilege of, of being a queer woman married to a man so I can walk through the world with a certain sort of invisibility, which I, I try not to, but right, perceptions right. are perceptions. And, and we have so much more to do to make sure that we are able to lift up our community and also make sure that we're not backtracking with people trying to take away our rights and our privacy. Um, you know, and, and, and we just need to, I don't know, maybe make people feel better about themselves so they don't have to take other people down. Like, the, it's you know, we talk mental health crisis. I think that this is a big part of it. It's like people need to make people feel less than so that they can feel safe within themselves and their own fears. And, you know, there's love your neighbors, get to know your communities. Yeah. Yeah, that's really that's the real important. pandemic is, is tearing people down. Let me one more on a hopeful note. You know, we 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 talked about the AIDS epidemic, but one of the things that really one of the things that came out of that was really good in our community mm-hmm. was, I mean, when I was growing up, it was very separatist between gay people, lesbians, and bisexuals. Right, those were the three groups, and and the the they never really got together. There were separate meeting places, separate bars, you know, to go to and when the epidemic happened and men were dying, it was the women who stepped up. It was the lesbian community who stepped in to care for the, the men and, and um, were the politicians that all got elected. They were all women, most of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the four women who created marriage equality were all elected during that time um, and really stepped up and filled a void and it brought our community together. And I, I, we've been better because of it. And it's why we have now LGBTQ, you know, I plus is because we've all come together. We're one big family. Yeah, it's true. You know, it used to not be that way. And I think those of us who, those who aren't old enough don't remember those separatist days. And it wasn't a lot of fun. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, so. it's it's very isolating. I, I always joke, if you want to get something done right, ask a lesbian. Isn't it the truth? <laughs> Isn't it the truth? It is so true. Um, Michael, thank you so much. I, thank you for being on the show. And I really look forward to continuing the conversation. And I just feel so grateful to have a friend and colleague like you working in the trenches and getting things done. Thank you. Well, thank you for keep shining a light on this industry and the work that you do. It's very much appreciated and does not go unnoticed. Thank you. And for those of you listening out there, remember, Planted is twice a month, and you can listen to us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Google, you name it, we are there. And if you are enjoying the podcast, leave a review, share it with a friend, follow us on social media. We are on uh, Twitter, Facebook and IG. On IG and Twitter, we're planted with Sarah. On Facebook, we're planted with Sarah Pion. Our website is www.plantedwithsarahpion.com. And of course, you can find us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where you can hear a lot of great podcasts. So if you like other things other than cannabis, which most of us do, although cannabis is really cool, (laughs) there are other great podcasts, including one of my favorites, The Winemakers. So check them out as well. Closing out today, remember, it's a crazy world out there. Be good to one another, stay safe, 
and stay curious. Until next time, signing off. Thank you.